Yart. Hello and welcome to the Blind Buy podcast. This is, it's episode 81 I believe. Um, This podcast is actually, it's pre-recorded because you're going to be listening to this on a Wednesday morning. I hope you're having a lovely Wednesday morning. I'm in Spain. I am in Spain for a week specifically to write in a very aggressive fashion. Um, I have a deadline coming up. Look, the second book of short stories is going to be coming out. And I have a deadline at the 31st of May. And I just want to get this fucking book out. I'm writing some stories that I'm incredibly happy with. I'm loving the way it's going. So I'm in Spain for a full week to go to cafes and write like a mad bastard. And I want to come back with about 20,000 words. Which is very achievable. If my head is in the right place and I'm focused and have no other distractions, I will come back with 20,000 words. So um, that's why this is a pre-recorded podcast. Um, It's going to be a live podcast. I'm interviewing an incredibly interesting chap called Connor Habib. And Connor is... Connor's from Los Angeles. He's just moved to Dublin. I've heard I'd heard of Connor before through uh, I'm a fan of, of a guy called John Ranson. John Ranson's a, a journalist and podcast maker and all of this. And John Ranson has done two or three pieces on the porn industry and Connor's name popped up once or twice because John Ranson was using him as a consultant, I think. So Connor Habib is a male porn performer. He's also an academic. He's an occultist. He's an incredibly interesting character. And when I saw that he'd moved to Dublin, I was just like, I gotta get this fucker on. I gotta get him on. Uh, So he came to Vicar Street and did a live podcast with me about two months ago. And we had amazing crack. It was unreal fun. We immediately just clicked an incredibly interesting person well able to talk, uh, well able to go off on a tangent, and I listened back to this live podcast that I'm going to show you, and I was laughing a lot through it. It's loads of crack and loads of fun, and we speak about some quite important things that aren't really spoken about that much in the wider narrative of Irish media, such as uh, sex work, attitudes towards sex. You don't really see large mainstream conversations about this happening, so it was a pleasure to have Connor come on and speak about that so i'm not going to do an ocarina pause this week i just want to let you go straight into the live podcast so before uh, i get into the live podcast as you know this podcast is supported by ye uh, the listener if you want to be a patron of this podcast if you want to give me the equivalent of a, a pint or a cup of coffee once a month you can patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast okay you can also like and subscribe to the podcast on fucking Spotify or iTunes or whatever. Connor is also a podcast host. He does a smashing podca- podcast called Against Everyone with Connor Habib. And Connor also has a Patreon page that I would urge you to, if you like this interview and you like what Connor's doing, consider becoming a Patreon. Because he's just after moving to Ireland and. This is his full-time gig. His full-time gig is going to be podcasting. 
Um, if you're a journalist and you're liking what Connor is saying, give him a shout. Have him on to write an article or to speak to him. Uh, a very interesting character that now happens to be living in Dublin. So his Patreon is patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. He spells his name C-O-N-N-E-R. And Habib is H-A-B-I-B. Any live gigs that I have coming up? Yeah, okay, I just got to get these out of the way. 27th of April, I've got Cork in the Opera House. There's about, I'd say, 15 tickets left for that. That that would probably be sold out by the time this podcast goes out, but sure, fuck it, have a look anyway. Then we have the 3rd of May, Letterkenny, Mount Errigal Hotel. And then the 4th of May, I'm in the Mullingar Art Centre. And the guy who's promoting this gig is busting my melt about me not promoting it or whatever the fuck or he's not happy with sales I think it'll be grand alright but anyway Mullingar just so you know I'm in Mullingar doing a live podcast on the 4th of May in the Mullingar Art Centre please come along to that we'll leave for fuck's sake so I can have a relaxing evening and then Limerick Dolan's Warehouse 9th and the 10th of May I think they're both sold out are they? I don't know anyway Yort God bless uh, I'll be back next week with a hot take um, just so you know, yeah, the fucking like hot take podcasts are a lot of work, lads. They're a huge, huge amount of work. So that's why this week I'm putting out a live podcast. This one, it's good crack. I know some people prefer regular podcasts to the live ones, but to those people, give me a bit of a break, please, for fuck's sake. I'm podcasting every week. I'm trying to write this book. I've got a BBC series. So I'm I'm effectively, I'm massively, massively overworked at the moment. So... For me to be able to put out this live podcast is a serious weight off my shoulders this week. I can now just write and I'm so thankful. And you know what? It, this, this live podcast is great crack. I think you'd really, really enjoy it. Uh, Connor's well able to talk and is really interesting. Without further ado, here it is. Look after yourself. Be nice to yourself. Be nice to other people and you'll be grand. All right? He is a writer. An occultist. A gay porn performer. (laughs) A sex worker's rights activist and a podcast host. His name is Connor Habib. Come to the stage, sir. What is the crack? How you doing? I'm still I'm figuring out what that means, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first question that I want to ask, right? You moved from, like recently, moved from Los Angeles to Dublin. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I'm going to make it sound even more fucked up because I've wanted to live here my entire life, actually. I, that's what I want to know about. Like. Yeah, yeah. So I came here when I was 15. It's actually where my... Uh, porn name, which is Connor Habib, but everybody calls me that now, uh, comes from. So are you like Connor in everyday conversation? Yeah. Why, why did you choose to spell Connor C-O-N-N-E-R? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say that that's the right way to spell it, but uh, I, Okay. It's a complicated story. So I came here when I was 15. I was in a pub in Ken Mayer, yeah? Yeah. And um, 
And it, was, and it was the first time I'd ever gone drinking in my entire life. And nobody, I was 15, nobody knew that I was like attracted to guys. And I was there with my sister and my stepbrother. And there were two guys like just sort of playing at being gay, like in a booth a little ways away. And they were like dry humping. And one of them kept going, oh, Connor, Connor, Connor. <laughs> and like the fucking sparks were like flying out of my head and I couldn't say anything about it. So, so, you, you found that erotic? Oh, Jesus Christ, two fucking, yes. Two, yeah. two lads in a fucking pub in, Con Ma in Ken yeah. Mayer. My sexuality is pathetic, yeah. So, so... <laughs> <laughs> I would shock... The, things, the, the kinds of guys I'm attracted to would shock and alarm you, yeah. So, uh, so I... <laughs> so, also, I had a... There was They probably a, listened to this podcast. I hope so. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if they'll remember that moment as much as I do. It could be their party piece. <laughs> but then there was a wrestling coach in my school when I was a kid named Mr. Connor, and it was spelled C-O-N-N-E-R. So I just brought it all together because wrestling coaches and guys dry humping in Irish pubs. That's, that's pretty much it. That is interesting. That's yeah. an interesting... <laughs> and Habib, you're, you're part Syrian, I believe. Yeah, I'm half Syrian. Does Habib, does that mean I'm okay? It means something. beloved. It means beloved. like beloved one or sweetheart, yeah. So you're so. Connor Sweetheart. Yeah, exactly. I'm, dry, I'm a pub dry humping sweetheart, yeah. <laughs> um, how are you finding Ireland so far? Like, I mean, coming from Los Angeles and going straight into the middle of Dublin, like, I mean... Yeah. It's not that... I mean, I've wanted to be here for so long that it's not actually that But you've only... For me. You, you, Twice. Like, I assumed that yeah. you were like coming here all the time. No. And I was like, I've made a very rational decision over several different years that, you know, rather than just, oh, yeah, go to that place where I saw the lads dry humping when yeah. I was 15. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to move there. I'm going to get my life and you know my life, I'm going to get that and put it into that place. <laughs> you know, I'm actually noticing now that you're bringing that up because I, moved, I lived in Massachusetts for eight years and I moved there solely on the fact that I saw a gay porn where a guy had a Boston accent. And I thought he was a ranger. The, the movie was called like Ranger, ranger Nick. Yeah. And he's like, you're doing a good job there. And I was like, I'm, I'm fucking going. So, <laughs> see, that's controversial Eight now. years. I got there eight years. So I'd be here for quite a while. So yeah. you also fetishize Irish Americans. I know. No, they're a different yeah. breed, man. I'm so just everybody in the audience. I'm very easy if you're Irish, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were you put out a tweet the other day. You were up in the George, a fine place. Yes, I was. But what did you say about the George? There's one bar is for older lads, younger lads talking about drag race, yes. and then. The old, what's the older bar? Uh, well, it's called Jurassic Park. I've already, I've already started calling it the JP um, <laughs> because that's my place now. Because I, I like being around, I like being around the older, the older guys. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What a suppose, yeah. It's, it's a bit weird if you just hang around with 20-year-olds. Well, <laughs> well, it's also like, I mean, I think in the U.S. there's a, at least, and may, maybe here too, but there's a big backlash against like the kind of like bro-gay culture, right? But then the alternative... What do you mean bro-gay culture? Well, just like the, uh, the idealizing like being like a straight guy, you know? Like that's a... Yeah. That's a but then the, the sort of alternative to it is this kind of like consumerist version of gay culture, which is like, let's just talk about RuPaul, which I have nothing against RuPaul and Drag Race and all that, but it's just the same, like, it's, it's all packaged, and I find that irritating, too. How, how do you feel about how 
pride is like really co-opted by large corporations who are doing nasty things. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this fu that's fucking gross. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Again, I don't know what pride is like over here. So, like, I don't, you know, I saw some of the questions people were asking, and they were about, well, what do you think about what's happening here in Ireland? And I'm still getting a feel for all of that. But in the U.S., completely, it's like you can have a multinational company that's killed tons of people, you know, in different countries, yeah. and be responsible for impoverishing people and all that, and they just put like a fucking rainbow flag on their murder float and people are like that's great yeah so fuck them you know yeah yeah, yeah. um you like i your podcast is against everything with conor habib against everyone yeah against everyone with conor habib and like i listened to your latest episode which was really interesting because <laughs> you like so you did an interview with irish media <laughs> And yes. you were not happy with it. No. And when I listened to that podcast, it was great because it's like, okay, I want to do the opposite of what Irish media are doing. Yeah, the, I mean, so this tell is... Tell us about your experience Yeah, with that. this is great. So, um, so, I went, so I, after like a few days of being here, somebody from an Irish radio station, I won't say which one, you can figure it out, um, reached out to me and was like, hey, heard you moved to Ireland. I was like, how the fuck do you, like, do you live inside of me? I have no idea how they knew. But they, but they, but they knew, and they asked me to be, you know, on their show and uh, with this, I guess, well-known radio host here. And um, they said, okay, so we, we wanted to be about you and what you're up to in the world. I was like, okay, great. I sent them this whole list of like resources, the same thing I sent to you, right? And yeah. so there's like a ton of stuff on there to choose from. And, um, you know, and I was like, look, I, you know, I, I've not really made a porn for like three years. I mean, I, that's always going to be part of my identity. I'm not afraid of it. I'm not ashamed of it. It's part of me. I, I, you know, I do a lot of sex workers' rights activism, but I'm writing, I'm doing my podcast. Those are the things I'm kind of known for now as the activism and the podcast and the lectures and stuff for the past three years, basically. And they were like, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, we're going to ask you about all that. So I'm going to ask the audience if you think that they asked me about any of that <laughs> on the show. So I got there, and the guy was like, so uh, you're in porn. Like, how do people react when you tell them you're in porn? And I was like, I mean, like this? Like, it was just, it, it was so irritating. I was, and it was all questions like that. Well, you're like, so when you, when you have sex for a job, what's it like having sex? And, and it's not that those questions are bad. You know, they're, they're all questions that I think people want to hear the answers to, and I think sex is so important to people, but we don't act like we can talk about like, it. So, and, and sex work and porn especially, but it was like, you asked me on to talk about all the things that I'm doing, and now you're not talking about any of it. You it felt really... it, was, it was disingenuous that they kind of, do, yeah. do you feel that they brought you on on the premise of something different and then cornered you? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, then, and then the, the guy who did the research... Uh, in quotes, did the research. He was like, I did so much research. I was like, you didn't do any fucking research, dude. But he, he was like, uh, he was like, you know, I think you sounded great. You sounded like a sex worker with agency. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know I sounded great because I gave that interview like 800 times to fucking blogs the first two yeah. years I started doing this. Like, and not again, like they're not bad questions, but they should have been. I, I kept offering. I was like, look, I'm going to come in, just re -record, just record two extra questions. Like, I don't yeah. care. And they were like, no, we can't. So they just deleted the interview. So this is my first Irish media interview. And I think it's a pretty fucking good one, right? Yeah. Um. So what I, what, I, yeah, what I did with it basically is, what I do with all my interviews, I asked the internet for the questions. And <laughs> do you know what? I, I was pretty pleased. I was pretty pleased with them. 
um, the only one dodgy question, and it was from it was from a well-meaning woman who direct messages. You're like it was from Big Dicks '84, but it was a dodgy no, question was, on this Twitter. No, this was this was a, a woman, a curious woman. Do poppers widen your hole, or is it a placebo? <laughs> so that's the only. That's the only question that's dodgy. Do you want to feel that one for me? Well, I mean, why does she have to ask Connor Habib? Why can't she just ask anyone who's used Or just used try it. Just try it. That's what it, yeah. You know? Try it, love. Come on, Sharon. <laughs> I remember uh, back in Limerick, poppers became a thing for a while, you know? It was... It, it used to be glue out of a, a Lucozid bottle which was called a Luca, and it cost five euros from a dealer. Or no, before euros, it was pounds. Then it moved on to links through a school jumper. Axe. <laughs> That's axe in America. Sniffing axe through okay. the school jumper. Yep. But then yep. when people got a bit of money, it moved on to poppers. Uh. But all the dudes that were doing it were like real hard lads, you know what I mean? Straight, masculine dudes. And it was before the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and then they found out what the poppers were for. <laughs> Imagine their surprise when they looked on the internet and also found out that sucking dick was gay and they've been doing it for like a year. <laughs> do, do you have... Here, are poppers illegal here? Are they, are they, you can get them in, as room orderizers and sex Oh, yeah, shops. because that's what it says in the U.S. It says VCR head cleaner. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, so like if you want to like take time travel to the 80s and like, you know, loosen your hole. Yeah. <laughs> um... We have an odd thing in the country at the moment regarding... Do you know, we had a situation in Ireland three years ago. Do you remember when drugs were fully legal for one day? Really? So it's our, like the, our is that a real thing? It's, it wasn't like... Uh, so like instead of the purge, it's like the binge. No, no. Uh. It, it wasn't like some, <laughs> some ancient thing written in the Irish annals. Every 1,000 years we can do ketamine. <laughs> but uh, no, what it was is that the, the government... <sighs> There was an anomaly, in the, an anomaly in the legislation where someone... Basically what happened is that a judge actually looked at the Irish drug law, right? Uh -huh. And it said, holy shit, we left out the part that made it actually illegal. <laughs> so they figured out, shit, it's not really illegal. It's just, it's a load of words that looks like it is, but it's not really illegal. Huh. So they had one day to change it to being fully illegal. Uh. So for one fucking day in Ireland, everything... Wow, but they and, didn't... And people, like, who remembers it? I went on the... I took ecstasy and went on the radio. <laughs> Do you not... Well, me, I, I went on... I went on... Tom, I... Because I, you can't... The thing is, you, you can't go on radio or TV with drugs in your system. You can't say it because the Broadcast Authority of Ireland will shut it down. Same way that you can't call... Uh, well, you can now. Remember I, I called the communion way for haunted bread? <laughs> but the BAI, the BAI ruled that that was okay, so you can't say haunted bread on the radio now. But you can't take drugs on radio or television and admit to it. But for this day, you could. So I took an ecstasy, and I spoke about sensible drug policy <laughs> in, in very loving terms. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking then that, like... I was thinking that for them to crank the, ch the change in the law out in one day, they must have done cocaine and speed to get that done. I thought they must have been like, let's just do a ton of coke, and then by the time we come down, it'll be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we always have these gray areas. We had these things, too, called uh, head shops. You have head shops in America, yeah? yeah? 
So head shops, that was all those fucking dodgy drugs, like uh, fake cannabis, which uh. was driving people nuts. But now there's this thing where you can walk, we, we, like cannabis isn't legal here in Ireland, but CBD cannabis is. Uh, uh-huh. So you can buy this weed. Have you seen it yet in shops? Smokable <laughs> fucking, it's fucking weed. It smells like weed. It, it's, it is weed. There's just no THC in it. But if the police catch it, they have to send it off to a lab to get tested. So really? It's a, a very expensive, strange loophole. <laughs> <laughs> How did we get talking about drugs? I don't um, know. I don't know what one to ask you about first, Connor. The occultism. Let's just get that out of the way, right? All right, yeah. <laughs> Why are you calling yourself an occultist? What does that mean? Yeah, so uh, for me, that's, you know, I was introduced to... Uh, <laughs> I was introduced to the cult by, at a very young age uh, by... But even it, what is it like no, for no, people no, who don't kidding. know? Um, so yeah, so ma- mainly for me, that's the influence in my life of this guy named Rudolf Steiner. So if you've ever heard of biodynamic farming or Waldorf schools or community shared agriculture, he invented all that shit. He was this sort of like... Uh, Leonardo da Vinci kind of figure from the late 19th, early 20th century. But and when, was, I, when I hear occultism, yeah, I think yeah. like a devil worship. Yeah, yeah. No, fucking. it doesn't mean that. I mean, there, there are all these different kinds of occult streams. Basically, for me, it means a philosophy that takes seriously the idea uh, that our <laughs> experience matters, that our thoughts are as real as objects, that there are different states of consciousness, and that means something. It's not just like, you know, oh, well... Our waking conscious is the one thing that matters, you know, the way we walk around. I know we've talked about this a little bit even before we came on stage, but also um, the idea that there is a spiritual landscape populated by spiritual beings, that's the crazy part, right? So, um, but for me, I get that out of just really paying attention to my experience. So I know that the world is not as it seems and that I need some kind of map for it that's not just the kind I've inherited when I realize this, you're a really weird person to say this to, um, but I realize that I can't ever see my own face, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, like, if you walk around, you realize that everybody has a different apprehension of you than you can ever have of yourself. That's a major mind fuck, right? When, like, you walk you're around, a different Connor for different people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But also, I can't ever see this, no matter what. Even if I look in the mirror, people are getting a completely different version of it, right? So, if I do something like that, or if I sort of pay attention to my experience and the phenomenology, which is just like... What, how do I describe my experience? How do I create a sort of philosophy around my experience? I realize that things are really fucking weird. And so when I realize that things are really weird and I go into it, a lot starts to unfold from there. But how, like, how do you define weird? <laughs> um, yeah, how would I define weird? I think noticing like, that my... Again, that my experience is really like a lot of the ways I just think about it, like there's material and everything's just material and it's matter, when I realize that no, actually things seem a lot more like evolving states of consciousness around me, that's what I mean as weird. So what does it mean that everything that I experience only comes through my thinking? Like that's fucking weird. Like nothing, nothing happens that's not apprehended by my own thinking. So how do I, how do I deal with that? How do I sort of unroll? Uh, a way to be in the world from there. So this is all I very like, about, yeah. I, I think I spoke about something. Would you, would you mean like, because um, one thing that always fucks up my head is like bats, right? <laughs> but bats, like they're not fully, bats aren't fully blind. They're not fully blind, but they don't really use their eyes. Yeah. But if you put a bat into this room now, they'd fly all around the gaff, 
they, w- they wouldn't hit any walls. They wouldn't yeah. hit my hand. But that bat has a perfect vision of this room, we'll say, but not through its eyes. Right. So what does this room look like in the inside of a bat's head? Yeah, when there's, it's a, not there's actually a really famous essay about that called... Uh, Was it Dick What is it like to be in bat? No, it's this guy, Nagel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not related to Angela Nagel, <laughs> different Nagel. Uh, but, but he... Um, yeah, so he wrote about the bat's experience and how that was sort of, you couldn't understand that. But you take it to a human level, right? So there's a great story. There's a book called Animism by this guy, Graham Harvey. And in it, he's recounting this guy that is walking through Australia with an Aboriginal guide. And the, guy's, the guide is sort of pointing out all the stuff that he sees along the way. And he says, well, there's the river, there's this. And he points to this sort of uh, mountain range. He says, and there's where one giant dog is fighting another giant dog and its guts are spilled out all over the place. Mm-hmm. And the the anthropologist is like, well, okay, oh, so you, so that's the origin story of these mountains. And the guy's like, huh? He's like, that's where, like, that's how these mountains formed. And he's like, no, there's a giant dog fight. Don't you see the two giant dogs, like, fighting right now? And so this guy had this realization, like, holy shit, like, there are different, not just concepts of the world, but the perceptive apparatus is actually completely different amongst different people and different traditions along the world. So what, what the fuck do we do now? And this is something that anthropologists have discovered again and again and again, interacting with different kinds of people and different groups of people around the world, is that the perceptual thing is actually different. And certainly throughout time, but also just in the present now. There's... Um it's one I spoke about on one of my earlier podcasts, but there was a tribe somewhere in Saudi Arabia in like the 1700s, okay? And it was when art was in the neoclassical phase. Mm. So there was a painter, Jacques-Louis David. So neoclassical painting is, it's like a photograph. It's not a photograph, but just really, really realistic, right. good painting. So the French were dealing with this tribe. And the thing is, is that they... the the tribes people, their thing was horses. Horses everywhere. They dealt with horses. They rode horses. Their lives were fucking horses, right? <laughs> like Not story, fucking Like horse. your story, yeah. Yeah, but ho- <coughs> horses were their thing. So the French went to this tribe, and with a gift, they brought them this amazing painting of a horse. Mm. If we looked at this painting of a horse, you'd go, fuck me, what a brilliant painting of a horse. <laughs> so the lads were Islamic, and within Islam... In the strictest form of Islam, you just simply do not draw or paint anything created by God. It's just, you don't draw animals, you don't draw humans. So when they showed this painting of the horse to the tribe, they couldn't fucking see the horse. Mm. Their lives were horses. They couldn't figure out the 2D representation of a horse because they'd never seen one before. So their perception of it is gone. Yeah. Well, you don't have to go to other cultures to see that. You can see it in your own life. Um, if you can remember before you couldn't read, um, there were just yeah. fucking symbols and squiggles everywhere. And then suddenly you go through this developmental, interdevelopmental process. And I would say that actually is very akin to kind of occult processes and developments where you go through this thing of deciphering and gathering all this sort of understanding of what these mean. And then suddenly the world is like filled with new meanings and they're everywhere and you can't unread, you can't learn to unread and suddenly everything is like coming at you in this new way. And I think that that's uh, in our own lives, you can experience this thing with the learning about what the horse was, you know? Um, You're a proponent of science being a social construct. Yeah, we'll just go right there. So so immediately Jordan Peterson's bat phone just went off. He yeah. just woke up in bed now. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah, maybe he'll Science fall a, down the stairs construct. in a daze. That'd be great. Because um, that's a tough one to, like, 
that it's 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 a very triggering one for a lot of people to hear because they go, "What about evidence, you prick?" Yeah. <laughs> but what, what does that mean for you, science as a social contract? Yeah. So first of all, I studied science in grad school with this scientist named Lynn Margulies. She was a really uh, well-known biologist and geoscientist. She was married to Carl Sagan, which is how everybody knows who she was. But um, so she. Uh, so, so my the best thing that I got from my science education was learning how to interrogate and question science in its own terms, and just say, okay, so what, you know, what's going on here when people investigate and say, I'm detached from this, I'm being objective. That was one thing that Lynn always impressed as a scientist who won the National Science Medal in the U.S. and is one of the most respected scientists in history. She was said, the first thing you have to know if you want to be a scientist is that there's no such thing as objectivity, and that really like. Like just, I mean, I had already had my suspicions, but she really just did a number on me for that. She was like, everything is like really mediated by the people who are looking. It's always the case that the prejudices come in. And so when I started learning science, I realized that throughout history, there were different kinds of scientific method. So scientific method was not a static thing. It's actually evolved over time and there are different versions. There's actually a really interesting version of it created by this guy, uh, uh, Goethe, who wrote The Sorrows of Young Werther and Faust and all that kind of stuff. His scientific method, I think, is actually way better <laughs> than the one we have right now. But also objectivity can, is can a concept. Can you talk us that, through the two different scientists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Goethe would say, like, if you see something, if you see a red flower and you have a certain feeling about that red, then that inner feeling you have is actually part of the phenomenon that's that's being interpreted. Because it matters what's happening inwardly when you look. and the observation, it's not objective observation, it's a communication between you and the but thing that's being observed. What happens if you think the flower is lovely and I hate the flower? Yeah, so that's, so first of all, like, I mean, that's a great question because what Goethe is saying is actually science is something that's a lot more individual than we think it is. And then what do we do with those kinds of conflicts between ourselves? And he wouldn't necessarily say, I'd have to say, oh, uh, this flower is love or something like that. But he would say just note that and don't throw it out as part of the evidence. That's one, that's one aspect of it. Um, I mean, I mean it's easy, when we're talking about something like <clears throat> music, we can accept that. It's easy to right. go, yeah. I don't like Coldplay, someone else thinks Coldplay are brilliant, <laughs> and that's okay, Yeah. you know? Um, what I just say is like, for, for, for that person, in their lived experience, they live in a universe where Coldplay are brilliant. Yeah. I don't live in a universe <laughs> where Coldplay are brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But that's, gr <coughs> that's grand with art. Yeah. But when you start applying that then to more science, I don't know, penicillin? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there is an interesting thing about medicines. There's actually a principle that I forget the name where medicines become less effective over time, almost always. And it's not just no, because... No, is that of, because of resistance? No, it's or? not just because of... It could be something that's not even like... Uh, it could be something that's not even antibiotic, right? So uh, all treatments become less effective over time. Um, so that's... To, except something like mending a broken leg or something like that. Yeah. That seems to actually... These physical injuries seem to be kind of static. But <clears throat> I just want to bring it, roll it back a little bit so we're not going down the Goethe rabbit hole and just say like um, the one of the things that we talk about when we talk about science being a socially constructed thing and someone like Jordan Peterson or people like that being like, oh, these postmodernists are ruining everything. What we should be more concerned about is the way that science is directed and led by corporate interests and yeah. how some kinds, that is the greatest threat to science being uh, destroyed and dissolved as an objective quote unquote uh, endeavor because scientists are guided by what funds them again and again. And there's a really interesting story about Lynn, which I'll tell when 
where Lynn was just like, she was not to be fucked with. She was a really intense person. And she once got, uh, she's in her office and someone called on the, uh, called on the, the phone to her, to her assistant. And this was right around the time when someone in the same building as her had made this major discovery about uranium and bacteria that was getting millions of dollars in funding. <clears throat> and so the person was talking to Celeste, her assistant, and said, oh, hey, can we talk to Dr. Margulies? This is, you know, the, this is the White House. We want to talk to her, because Lynn didn't really communicate through email. And uh, Celeste was like, okay, what's this about? And they're like, well, it's the White House. Can you just put her on the fucking phone, right? And so Celeste went over and said, hey, can we, can, do you want to take this call? And Lynn was like, just ask him what it's the fuck about. And she's like, they won't tell me. She's like, ask him. So she got back on the phone. She said, look, Dr. Margulies is very busy. What is this about? And they said, we can't disclose that to you, but please tell her that there's a lot of money and funding involved. So Celeste went back in, and she said, there's a lot of money involved. And Lynn said, if it's not public, it's not science, just fucking hang up on them. So she went back in and just hung up on the White House. So like, not the White House, I'm saying, but the government, basically. Yeah. And so I think that that's like the kind of... Uh, unfortunately, most scientists can't afford to do something like that, but that's the kind of like integrity that you need to be able to navigate an actual objective science that's not led by these fuckers that want to lead your research so, into the military, basically. What would you... Yeah, of course. Like, even something... You can trace... Like, what Google is now, you can trace yeah. that back to the late... The mid-90s with CIA funding. Yeah, and IMDb was a yeah. dar was a total information awareness project. Yes. And then, you know, 20 years later, oh, they're using the data to spy on everyone. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what do you think it was for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you feel about, like, a Patreon-style model for yeah. science, then? <laughs> Does that exist? Crowdfunded science? Does that exist? Huh. No? I think they are trying to do open source science and open source journals and stuff like that for science, but it's not really up to that point. I mean, independent researchers can seek out independent funding, but that's, that's about it. Most researchers are you know, related to universities in one way or another. Um, t tell us about the PhD you're doing right now. Yeah, okay, so um, I'm, studying, <laughs> I'm, I'm here to study... Uh, how people who investigate and have paranormal experiences and supernatural experiences in Ireland and the ways that they're stigmatized and ridiculed and dismissed by their communities, the media, and their families, and how that affects the material conditions of their lives, whether it's an investigator who can't get paid for putting in real labor hours and research, it's someone who has a stigmatized property, they can't really sell their house, someone who's deemed mentally ill for saying they saw a ghost or fairies or whatever of these long-term, and why also those experiences when we see them in media, like a narrative and a horror movie, for example, are so popular. So for me, like this was all sort of queued up because I was talking to my friend Greg Newkirk, who's a paranormal investigator, and he read me a letter that was from uh, someone who sent in and said, I have a poltergeist. And this guy was like, look, I have, I have this weird thing going on. If I told anybody, everybody would think I was crazy or sick or laugh at me. And uh, I've seen you on you know, the internet, and I feel like you're the only person I can talk to. And I was like, Greg, this is the same letter I get all the time, but about fucking. Like, <laughs> I got this email. 
constantly about sex. You know, people saying that they have weird desires that they can't express or whatever. And so then I started realizing and talking to Greg and his wife Dana Moore about the ways in which they were stigmatized for the, even the work that they did, the way that people had been like fired from jobs, the way that people had been like made fun of by people uh, for having these kinds of experiences. Now, whatever you want to think about the reality claim of the experience, those kinds of events are happening. So I was, I'm really interested in that and also the ways that people are, you know, how, how do you formulate like an idea of the world if you see a ghost? Like, do you just say, well, that was a ghost. I guess the world is exactly the same as I thought it was, but there's just this one weird thing about it. Or do you start to reformulate your entire idea of the world? And have you ever seen a ghost? Um, have I seen a ghost? Yeah, I have. Yeah, when my mom died when I was 24, um, I've seen a lot of weird things, but when my mom died when I was 24, um, she was in hospice care for a really long time in the house. So she died of cancer, so it took a, a long, there was like a long death. And I was in my bedroom upstairs, I'd come home from college, and I was in bed, and I just sort of looked over, I was kind of out of it, and my mom, who was at this point in the bed downstairs, she weighed like, you know, 70 pounds or something, she was like a nothing, you know, just a skeleton, and she was standing there fully formed, and she said something to me, and I said something to her, and then my stepfather called up the stairs, he said, hey, I think it's time, and I went downstairs and my mother died. Wow. So, yeah. Wow, and as you said there, like, how do you then process reality if that's an experience you had? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really a great question <laughs> yeah. that, I, that I'm still trying to answer. I mean, and, you know, the really, I, I had this guy who, an old professor of mine who is really into psychology, he's like, well, well, you sort of retroactively, yeah. like, planted that there. I mean, I think that that's fine, you know, that's fine to say, but so many people have experiences like that. So we, we need to talk about, and so many people have variations of that experience. It's called a crisis apparition. And I just want to know more about that. Well, if people are doing that, still, there's still something to be reckoned with here because now memory has a relationship to death that we didn't think it had before. Yeah. <clears throat> so the, the case kind of that you're making, it's not... You're not doing a PhD on our ghosts, real. You're doing a PhD on why is this stigmatized? Why do we shut these conversations down? Yeah, and how people think about the world when they have these experiences. So there's a lot of weird shit around this, right? So like, like why Ireland? Why Ireland? Like, <laughs> like I mean, have you, there, we do have. You're gonna keep a, coming back to that question. There's a lad down in Kerry. There's a lad down in Kerry. I nearly had him on the podcast, but. Like, he successfully had, a, he stopped a motorway being built. Yes. Because there was a fairy yeah. fort there, you know? Well, that's shit, it's shit like that that's so interesting to me, so right? So we still have elements of that in our culture. And don't you guys have, I just learned about this person and I don't know anything about him. Healy Ray, is that this person? <laughs> 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 Who talked openly about, I mean, you imagine a, 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 as someone in the United States would never talk about fairies, like, or fairy forts publicly, a politician, right? You he, talk he's an interesting character. Yeah, he, right. he's a, his other lobbying thing is he's trying to abolish, people should be allowed drink and drive, that's what he wants. <laughs> And, How uh, do the fairies have anything to do? Because the fairies... It's, what it is, is... is uh, he yeah, wants to support fairy bars. To understand the Healy Rays, you have to fairy understand pubs. the needs of a very forgotten and isolated community. Yeah. So, there's a... Like, regarding his comments, <laughs> on, obviously, don't legalise drink driving. But... <laughs> all right, I'll talk to you later. Let's... <laughs> 
But here's the thing, right? So don't legalize drink driving, but we said the heart of where he's coming from. Uh-huh. So put it this way. My dad was born in 1933, very, very rural West Cork, fucking mud huts. And when he was, seriously, <laughs> mud huts. <laughs> and, <laughs> but he tells me, he, well, he, when he was alive, he used to tell me stories about, um, what was it? When he was a kid, he used to hang around outside the, the local pub. And all the old drunk men used to have a donkey and cart outside the pub. So they would go to the pub, get shit-faced drunk, get into the cart, and the donkey would know the way home. So you had all these eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Didn't he say the car knows the way home? Is yeah. That, is that something he said? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty... If you have a self-driving car, that's true, you know. Well, that's the thing. The, it's a the, Tesla. That's what I want to get to, is like... In the olden days, the donkeys were taking the drunk men home, but yeah. now there's a real situation in rural Ireland where men, you're getting men who can't socialise, who can't meet women, who can't live their lives because they live up on a hill, the pub is too far away, and they can't get there because it means drink driving. Uh-huh. So you've these very isolated men. It's correlating with higher levels of uh, mental health issues and suicide, so it's a real thing to be looked at. But I think... We need these glowing driverless pads with drunk old men in them just hovering across the countryside. Or just like... That's the future I want. Yeah. You're just there in the middle of Kerry at night time and there's this little self-driving mobile coffin with a drunk 80-year-old man glowing. <laughs> Couldn't you just have an escalator? Like a really big escalator yeah, up the we, hill? We need, we, need lateral, we need lateral thinking because it, yeah. it is an issue. The solution is not let them have five pints, it'll be grand. Right. It won't be grand. Or else, I don't know, put pubs on stilts and let the pubs walk. <laughs> or just have drones drop the drinks in people's house. You could. Just like booze drones. Yeah. The, oh, well, you said something very funny uh, backstage. You're, you're half Irish, half Syrian. Yeah, so I can blow up anything. That's what I said. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> um, so we're going to take a little intermission soon so you can have a, a gentle wee and a gentle pint. I haven't talked about porn yet, Connor. <laughs> um, do you see a difference between Irish and American attitudes towards sex, or are you not here yet long enough? I'm not here yet long enough, although I do want to say I've had some weird, like, grinder and scruff experiences. <laughs> like, one guy who is like, I just, he really was like, wanted to go, he's like, let's fuck, let's fuck, let's fuck, let's fuck, like really into it, or fuck, fuck, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so... Was this in real life now or on an app? This is online, so maybe he did not have an Irish accent. Okay, You're right. okay, yeah. right. Sorry. Uh, so, and then, and then uh, he made this comment, he was like, I wish I could clone you. And I was like, okay, then we could have a threesome, right? And... Because I know I really want to have sex with myself, you know? I mean, <laughs> just to see what that feels like in there. Um, so. Do you masturbate to your own pornography? Some, 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 sometimes. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. But anyway, so he said, let's have a, let's, let's, 
I want to clone you so we can have a three. And I was like, I was like, yeah, let's have a threesome with me and and he said, no, I want you all to myself. And I was like, <laughs> what? What the fuck? What? Are you he you know what clone me. means? Yeah. What the fuck? I want to clone you. What the? Yeah. Fuck? So he was so he was so. Concerned. I want to clone you so I can have a toxic, jealous relationship. Yeah, with exactly. I want to have you and have you be jealous of me having you. Fucking fair play to him. <laughs> Well, you know, there's that joke. There's this joke. I heard it. I mean, I, he didn't write it, but Slavo Žižek told it. This philosopher, and he said, uh, "Okay, so, the, <laughs> so there's a guy, and he's stuck on an island, a desert island. It's Cindy Crawford. Uh, this is the example he used. But so, whatever supermodel you want to put in there. But he's stuck on a desert island with Cindy Crawford, and they're there, you know, for a week. And he's like, "Can I have sex with you?" She's like, "No. We've just been here, like, you know." And so then a year goes by, two years, and he's like, "Can I please have sex with you?" And she's like, "After two years, she's like." All right, yes, finally, I'll have sex with you, sure. So they have sex, and he's like, okay, okay, now, hold on. I know this is going to sound a little weird, but can you please put this hat I made of a coconut on your head and hold this frond in front of your face so it looks like a mustache? And she's like, okay. And, he, and so she does it, and he goes, hey, I just had sex with Cindy Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the idea being that people want... People consummate sexual acts in all sorts of ways, right? So this must have been this dude's clone way of doing it, you know what I mean? Like in his imagination or something. And you told me you had, you had an interesting uh, exchange with an Irishman regarding Hiberno-English and sex. Wait, I did? What did I you say? You told me backstage. Re regarding Hiberno... The lad who said something to you, we were talking about how... Oh, how yeah, yeah. So I got a video from this guy when I was just talking... Um, before I moved here, he like sent me a video and it was him just talking to me in his Irish accent. And he said, Connor, I'd eat your ass like. And I was like, what's it like at the end of that? Like what? <laughs> yeah, it was, so, it was so, but then, you know, you explained it to me. I was just, I think. Kind of, well, you're, you're a huge, you're a, you used to teach Joyce. Yeah. So, All like, right. yeah. Joyce, like, Joyce's whole shtick is Hiberno English. He speaks <laughs> English the way we speak English. And, I was just, that's, English was forced on us. We speak English, but still we maintain some of the gra grammatical structure of, of, of the Irish language. So that's why you end up saying, can I eat your ass like? I'd eat your ass like. <laughs> but does anybody know? Yeah, what is the can Irish? someone translate that into Irish for us? What's just the yell Irish it out? Can I eat your ass like? It wasn't a question. Yeah, Pogue Mahone. Like... Mahone is, can I kiss your ass? But kissing and eating bottoms are different things. <laughs> I mean, I like a little kiss every once in a while. <laughs> Who knows the Irish for... Uh, I'd eat your ass like. One person. What was it? Okay. Can you all yell it out at once to us in unison? <laughs> Two very clear school teachers. <laughs> because the thing was... <laughs> I tell you how I know. Like, my Irish is very, my Irish isn't great, but when I asked for it the second time, it was just pure judgment in stereo. <laughs> it was like, you've been talking to seven year olds today who are shitted Irish. <laughs> I'll um, just check on Duolingo, yeah. Fucking Duolingo. Duolingus. Passive yeah. aggressive owl. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that. Jesus Christ, have you rang your mother today? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> we'll take a little 10 minute break for a pint and a piss, all right? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression, or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible. And it's suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindboy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindboy. I forgot my sheet of questions to the, the side of Sage staff. Can you bring my sheet of questions, please? They're upstairs in the green room. <laughs> um, <clears throat> someone tweeted the Irish for I would eat your arse like. <laughs> oh, das an Abert a V-O. So there you go, lads. Now you know. There you go. Um... So let's, let's talk about, right, one thing, it's a conversation that does not happen in Irish media, really. It's something that is going to be spoken about in the coming years, I think. Uh, sex work isn't spoken about. Sex work, activism, sex workers' rights is not a, a national conversation at the moment. Do you okay. want to chat about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, it's not a national conversation in so many countries. It's not in the U.S. either, for sure, except in that. Thank you. They're just tweets, let's. <laughs> uh, except, except in the sense of like, you know, every narrative about a dead hooker or, you know, a tragic porn star story or sex trafficking or 
all those kinds of ways, that's the way that sex work is a national conversation. But uh, besides that, it's not really a national conversation. And it should be a national conversation about workers' rights. Yeah. It should be a national, national conversation about, uh, in, in my opinion, about sexual liberation for the people who are doing sex work that want that to be part of their idea of work, because not all sex workers do. Um, it should be about a conversation about uh, autonomy and agency and all those sorts of things. But it's not any of that right now. By the way, there's a, there's a group here in uh, Ireland called the Sex Workers Alliance Ireland, SWAI. So please go on Twitter and follow them and yeah. give them your support. I mean, and if, if you want to know what to think about sex work in Ireland, don't listen to me. Um, listen to them because they're the ones that are doing sex work in Ireland and working on all these issues here. So they're an awesome organization. But anyway... Yeah, so it, it's, not, it's not really a national conversation in the way that it needs to be in most places. Um, and one thing that you see a lot around the sex work conversation is you hear the phrase Nordic model and whether people are for it or against it. Yeah. To someone who hasn't a clue what that is, can you explain it? Yeah, so the Nordic model is essentially you... It's, a, it's, it's supposed to be progressive. It's not progressive. It's actually completely regressive, which is that it's saying, okay, well, we don't want to arrest these poor women who are being coerced and falling into these awful patterns of behavior. So we'll criminalize the guys who are paying for sex. Mm -hmm. So if you try to hire a sex worker, you'll be criminalized. But as it's still, sex work is still criminalized, but it's only, they only arrest and enforce it around the people that uh, are paying for sex workers and hiring sex workers. Now think about that for a second. <laughs> We, we don't want to hurt the workers, so we're just going to arrest everybody that pays the workers. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And Amnesty International did a huge study on this, and they condemned it. And every group that has significantly researched sex work and talked to sex workers, including groups that are composed of sex workers, have come out against this model. And in fact, we've seen huge spikes in deaths mm -hmm. and... Uh, and police brutalization, rape, all that, because sex workers still can't go to talk to anybody if anything bad has happened, because it'll totally pull the rug out from under their ability to meet with clients to make yeah. a living. And it makes it harder for them to screen clients, because when you have escorting sites where, where someone can advertise and meet people and talk to other sex workers about their clients, and the clients aren't afraid of going on there and contacting sex workers, then like you have a lot of word of mouth about clients, but because it's limited the ability for clients to freely speak about and talk to people and seek out people, it's limited the pool of clients, which has limited the revenue for sex workers, which has made them more susceptible to violence. Mm -hmm. So it, there are a lot of problems with it, but I think really the Amnesty International uh, study is one of the best places to go to look for that and, and sway, yeah. Um, what I've heard is, because I even heard an argument against full legalization, because if it's fully legalized, yeah. then it opens it up for corporate power. Whereas with decriminalization, it keeps the agency in the sex worker's hand. Yeah, so that's another thing to sort of parse out. Almost no sex workers want sex work to be legalized. That might sound weird, but I want you to think about politicians, okay? Who could be possibly the worst people in the world to make laws and regulations around sex? 
the most repressed people in yeah. the entire world who can't ever even talk about their sexual desires or their sex lives, right? So, I mean, they're just completely inept and incapable of making laws and regulations around sex. That's the first thing. But second of all, it subjects sex workers to the kinds of regulations and rules that actually can still be rather oppressive and problematic. So, to, you know, like in, in the U.S., for example, um, I don't know what it's like here, but there are all these laws that criminalize HIV transmission. So if you are somebody that, like there was a woman who gave a guy a, a blowjob and she had HIV and she was charged with manslaughter. I mean, it's just like crazy shit like that. So think about how that relates to sex workers and mm -hmm. what their lives are, even if they're undetectable or if they're on PrEP or if they're using uh, Truvada for... Uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis or if they're you know, using condoms or whatever. So there are all sorts of problems with the regulation. Now maybe we could get to a point one day where we have governments uh, that are capable of intervening in these kinds of situations and setting up something that works for sex workers, but I don't think that we see that with government bodies regulating other forms of yeah. work, so I don't know that we're gonna see it with sex work. Do you see anyone in the world that's like a shining beacon of doing sex work right? Um, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I would like to. There are some places where, like, the laws are a little better, like New Zealand, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, everybody talks about, uh, yeah, I mean, the answer is no. You know, I yeah. mean, I could go down that because cause one of the problems is that even if we have decriminalization, we have to go beyond that. We have to start challenging our attitudes towards sex and labor in general. If you want to get rid of sex work, um, the best way to do it is to get rid of work. Like, let's not anybody have to fucking have jobs anymore. And also liberate your attitudes towards sex so sex transforms. And then it doesn't exist anymore. Then I'd be okay with it. But right now, That's we don't have That's a big ask there, Connor. It's a big ask. <laughs> Tomorrow, please. Um. <laughs> but I'm totally, I mean, I should just say, like, I'm totally against, I think that work is, like, like really fucking, like, the problem with sex work is work. The problem with sex work is that people have to have jobs, particularly in the U.S., where the idea is work or die. Um, go work and be forced into a specific wage-labor relationship, or you'll, your kids will starve, or you'll starve, or you won't have health care. Uh, try to find a job because you need to have one and then get so depressed that you kill yourself because you can't find one and provide for your family, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many problems with work, and that's what kills people. And people try to make a special case out of sex work all the time. But sex work just has the same problems as any other job. Like my friend Stoya says, you know, okay, she's a porn star, and she said, you know, my father was a stonemason. Sometimes he would go to work and he would break his hand. Sometimes I go to work and hurt my cunt, you know? Yeah. And it is... <laughs> it's true. It's physical. It's physical labor, but the same and problems emotional are present. labor. Yeah, and yes, well, it can be. And the and the fact is, all the problems that are unique to sex work are only unique because of the way that it's regulated and oppressed and not thought through um, by people and institutions in power. So, are you like tax the robots and give everyone a living wage, uh, <laughs> or is it should we barter things for sex? <laughs> Like, which, 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 what's your vision of a utopia? <laughs> I, I have 12 chickens, sir. Can I have a blowjob? <laughs> I actually charge 14, sorry. <laughs> so you're a little short. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think, do you mean what's my idea of utopia when it comes to sex Yeah, work? no, but like when you were talking there about, you know, get rid of work. Yeah. Replace it with what? Well, see, the, I... 
the first thing I want to do is try to imagine what that looks like, right? Yeah. Uh, because the problems that are present right now are fucking terrible, right? Think about, for instance, I know I'm sort of dodging your question, but I'll come back to it more directly. Think about, okay, so you're fairly successful doing the things that you love doing. Yeah. Think about and, and how I'm, I'm, I'm an anomaly. I'm an anomaly. Think about how fucking hard it was for you to get there. Yeah. I want what I do, what you do, which is like sit back and say, what do I want my day to look like? What do I want my day to feel like? I want, and I worked so hard to get to the point where I'm at now, which is still fucking difficult, which is still yeah. always trying to piece things together from all these different streams of income. I want that to be easy for everybody, right? And so what, basically what I'm proposing is that we start, I don't know what it looks like. I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to have the impossible vision of some people. There are a lot of post-work anarchists. But what I'm trying to do is think post -work to myself. Post-work anarchists. They're awesome. Bob Black is, is, is a really fun one. You'll love him. Uh, he, has a, he has an essay called The Abolition of Work, and the last line is, workers of the world, relax. <laughs> But um, I think... That's a real fucking trying to pick a girl up in the, in the smoking area, the workman's club, though. <laughs> What do you do? Well, actually, I'm a post-work anarchist. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> Or something you say to your parents, get a job. <laughs> well, let me tell you that. All, all it means is that all it means is that we start to sort of chip away at this enforced, I would say, completely non-consensual wage-labor relationship. We should not have to make a living. That is fucked up. But we take that into account, like we, we, we've taken that in so internally. You know, I'm not saying that we don't do things that look like effort, that look like, okay, I like doing this, so I'm going to dedicate my time to it. Or I, you know, have these ideas that I want to enact in the world, and I need a team with me to do that. But the idea that the wage-labor relationship is the way that it is, enforcing that and making us do that or die, especially in the U.S., but I, in, in countries that don't have any safety net at, at all, I mean, I think that that is really fucked up. So I want to start asking the question not, what do you want your job to be? What do you want to do for a living? I want to say, what do you want your day to look like? If we just mm -hmm. start there, something else begins to unfold. And there's this guy, Fritjof Bergman, who uh, he started something called New Work. He moved to Detroit. Um, he, because he saw that everybody was, you know, sort of unemployed there. Yeah. And this is what he asked. He said, you know, I saw everybody being unemployed as an opportunity for us to completely change the way that we think about our day and what we do in the world and how we contribute. So instead of trying to get these people back into work, I said, all right, you're all unemployed. Great. Now we have a chance to start a completely different kind of culture here. And so he's been working with that from the ground up. And I think we need more people who are viewing that as an opportunity, you know. And some would say now is the right time for that because robots are doing so many jobs that... Yeah. You know, if that was the, what the future was supposed to be. I like, know, <laughs> I know. The robots are doing the work. Uh, they're generating money. Let's take the robots' money. That's not how it's working at all. No. <laughs> now it's just like... Let's bring a lot of robots into done stores and fire a lot of people who used to work at the... Right. At, at and it's, it's all it's done is turned us into the robots. Yeah. So that's really fucked up. I mean, think about that. Think about the different dimensionalities people used to have in their work lives. You'd be doing all kinds of different shit with your body, threshing in the field. And I'm not, I'm not uh, romanticizing farm work or hard labor. My father is a contractor. It's hard work. But... Think about it now. Like, what do you see if you look into a fucking building? It's everybody doing this, like sitting still, moving their fingers and their eyes. Like, the positionality of our bodies has changed because we've be fucking becoming parts of the computer. That's really crazy. I mean, I don't 
That's crazy. The yeah. only <laughs> the only company I can think of that kind of challenges that a little bit is Aldi. Because it's what, what? Aldi is a... They're in America too. It's just a really cheap supermarket. But what they do... And just people I know who work in Aldi, they like it. It's... There's no such thing as just working at the checkout. Uh. You do that, and then you go and pack tomatoes, and then you go and sweep the floor. <laughs> but their day has variety. So fair play, Aldi. <laughs> um, but however, the Aldi manager experience apparently is not very pleasant. <laughs> because uh, people who go for jobs in Aldi and Lidl it's like, wow, free car, wow, amazing wage. Just be a manager, but it's like you're a manager of about 20 stores in a region, and it just sounds like a never-ending hell of driving and shouting at people. So, no and it's in your job description to handle the robot revolt when it eventually happens, you know? That's, and that's the no thing, fun. that's the scary thing about fucking robots, you know? <laughs> They're going to start... But they Robots already don't have. give a shit about anyone. They already have. That's what I'm saying with the fucking working at the computers. Like, they're already starting. Like, it's not, it's not like, oh, the Terminator's going to come to life and kill us. Like, it's already fucking brought us into submission, you know? Yeah. Um, how do you feel about sex robots? <laughs> it depends on if they're hot or not. I mean, I think... <laughs> I saw a <laughs> pornography film of men film. fucking their sex dolls to techno music. Uh. And it was one of the most lonely but beautiful things I've ever seen. <laughs> because there were those, do you know those really, really expensive sex dolls that look like humans? So it was two lads with them. But then you're going, no, it's just two of you in, in air, air humping, <laughs> air humping while listening to Underworld in a bedroom together, lads. And they didn't think that that was in any way homoerotic because their plastic women were present. Yeah, it's sort of like Guitar Hero, but with pussies. Yeah. Yes! <laughs> um, how, did, how did you get into making pornography? How did I get into making pornography? Yeah. So, like, how did... Because we don't have... Like, there's no porn being made in Ireland, like... Well, no, I, so I want to... Porn, like Ireland, was like a really lifelong dream. Like, I have wanted... I wanted to do porn for a really long time. Some kids want to be astronauts or president or whatever. I wanted to be a porn star. And so... But, like, <laughs> how... Like, we didn't have porn until 1996. Lads, porn wasn't legal. I mean... I had, I had a, a set of racy playing cards when I was 13. <laughs> I'm serious, man. Yeah. You know, they were German. Like, to get porn in Ireland when I was a kid, someone's, someone's grubby father had to go to England. <laughs> I remember my, I like my the dad some, I like me. the someone, someone's grubby father had to go to England. But um, my, uh, there was a brilliant <laughs> painter in Limerick called Jack Donovan. He's one of my favorite fucking painters. He was amazing. And he used to get smuggled pornography and stick it onto the canvas in the 70s in Ireland, which was fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. But my brother was in art college when he was his lecturer in like 1991. And Jack Donovan, there was a pair of bachelor farmers that were living together with their mother out in the countryside. And she came across their suitcase full of pornography. And she threw it out onto the side of the motorway, you know. So Jack Donovan found this fucking suitcase full of pornography, which was gold in Ireland at the time. <laughs> so he brought it into the art college to look through it. Then all the other art lecturers came down to see this find of art. <laughs> and my brother, he was like 19, a fist fight ensued amongst 50-year-old men uh. 
over a suitcase of smuggled pornography. I'm talking, this is only 25 years ago, so th yeah. that's, that's what you're dealing with when you're talking porn in Ireland. Grown men fighting over suitcases of smuggled pornography. <laughs> so what you were obviously, you were seeing porn at a young age then, and it was yeah, open. Well, we, and we, uh, yeah, it's like I'm realizing I'm like a parent's worst nightmare. Like I grew up and became an occultist porn star. It's like the devil and sex is basically what people think when they, but, but no, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I saw porn when I was very young. Yes. It's, well, so, how like, with like a friend's tape? No, we had these things called, I don't know if you had them here, but they were called cheater boxes. Does anybody know what those are? Where you would steal the neighbor's cable. Yeah. So you, so you would put like this box on your TV and you would sort of splice the neighbor's cable wire into your, and my father. That was a thing, but my it was, father it was just that. to see English soccer. We couldn't get uh, any. There was no pornography. I, that can be used for pornography. I hate to tell you. But yeah, um, English soccer. But I, um, but I, but yeah. So I, we were. I mean, this is this is a crazy moment. So I think I was like eight, seven or eight years old. My parents had just gotten divorced. My dad had this giant screen TV, and. Uh, the the cheater box was in, and this was so long ago, so that like the remote control only had an up and down button, so you could only go like up and down through the channels. And as he was going through, he hit channel 27. I was sitting in the living room with my dad, my stepmom, and my sister, or the woman who had become my stepmom and my sister. And the channel, the remote died at the the battery died as it hit channel 27. I say it like there's this line in the. In John chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, the hands of an angel troubled the waters of the pool of Bethesda. The hands of the angel troubled the battery of the remote control <laughs> and killed it on channel 27. So I'm just seeing this giant dick and like pussy, just like, and my sister screamed. But you, you didn't have a context for it, I'm guessing, did you? I didn't know, no, I didn't really know what it was. So wh yeah. why are those people attacking each other? Yeah. <laughs> And why is my sister screaming and covering my yeah. eyes? You know, that, and that to me, that actually that moment was really formative for me, not because I saw the porn, but because I got this lesson about human sexuality really early, which was like, here it is, it's giant, everybody wants to watch it, there's a TV channel, don't look at it! You know, yeah. and that is the history of Western sexuality. <laughs> it's there, everybody's thinking about it, it's present, it's for everybody. Don't talk about it, don't think about it, don't do it, don't express it, don't, you know, all those things, and, and scream and be offended by it at the same time, you know? So I think that that really, that's more what left the impression than just seeing that. I mean, I don't want to, I didn't see that and say, I want to do that. I wasn't like that. I got a little older, you know, and my body started working in a certain way before I realized that I wanted to do that. But do, Would you say, because I'm, I'm I'm picking up a vibe that you're, <laughs> like, was, was it an act of rebellion? Was it an act of yeah. punk rock, fuck society? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a porn performer's favorite question is, so what do you do? <laughs> you know, because when they have, what do you do for a living? You yeah. know, because when you tell people, there's a confrontation immediately. Yeah. Because you tell people and then suddenly, and again, I don't really do porn anymore. The last porn I did uh, came out in tw uh, 2017 maybe it was called Jack's new job I was Jack um, I got I got the job um, so that's my you know the, uh, despite my post work anarchist I went I, I went on Pornhub for research obviously to see what Connor was up to which is good nobody ever does that by the way they're all I don't like, mind watching lads you. fucking yeah I have no problem with that but I saw the most beautiful title for a porn I'd ever seen in my life. And in all my time of looking at pornography online, I've never laughed out loud at the title. It was... Muscle Bud's Backyard Buttfuck. 
<laughs> I thought <laughs> I, I, I thought you were gonna say hard Brexit, but no, not that. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, how, like, what do you do to get, like, what, did you just walk up to a, a porn person's door and go, what's the crack? <laughs> like, how, like, what happened? He, um, Mr. Guy, you have a mustache, can you hire me? And, yeah. and being, and the other thing as well is, like, what's it like being, being a lad? Like, if, uh, is it easier being a woman in porn? Is it, like, what's the story with genders? Like, I know... I don't know what stories with, with, with gay porn, but I've, I've heard male straight performers just going, you know, they don't get paid as much, it's hard for them. A lot of them are just yeah. in it for the sex. Yeah, well, they're not, they're not, they just have to work more, so more often. So actually, and it's gay it's, for pay. A lot of straight lads who do gay stuff for yeah, the money. Yeah, we can talk about gay for pay um, back, backstage. No, we can talk about gay for pay. We can talk about gay for pay here. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, uh, no, I, so I was going to say, like, interestingly, like, when anti-sex work, so sex work exclusionary radical feminists, WERF is the term, when they come down against porn, it's like, this is the one industry where women make vastly more than men. <laughs> like, yes. this is where the, the, the wage gap is, like, in women's favor to an extreme degree, where they're making so much more money, uh, by and large, you know, not always, but by and large, and so... I think that, yeah, men in straight porn end up getting much less. I think that they should be getting paid just as much as anybody else. People should be getting paid equal wages despite their gender in, in, in all places. But I'm happy with it being weighted toward women, at least one fucking industry. You know what yeah. I mean? So, but, um, but, I, but I'm saying that they have to work a lot more. With gay, with gay guys, it's like, it used to be more, but the wages have been steadily decreasing over time in general in ways that I find actually rather exploitative. So a lot of the workers have, uh, and no pun intended, seized the means of production um, and, and begun, that, uh, that's a Marxist uh, gay sex term. Um, <laughs> had begun to you know, do OnlyFans, just for fans, all that kind of stuff, and make their own money. But then that has its own like, weird trap, too, because a lot of those performers are then not paying the people that come and make the, the videos okay, with them. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, it's, not, it's not happening that much, but I've seen it start happening. I'm like, you guys, did you not fucking learn? Like, you are being treated like shit by your bosses. Don't become bosses. Like, yeah. Become workers in solidarity with other workers. You know? Yeah. Um, and... Is, do you have the thing with, like, with straight porn, female porn stars get elevated into, like, icon status? Yeah. Does that happen with, you never see it with, with maybe one or two male porn stars, like R- Rocco Sofridi. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? If you say to lads, name a male porn star, they'd say Rocco Sofridi. Just because yeah. he always wears funny shirts. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Is, is that the case with gay male porn as well? Would you... Yeah, yeah, you can like, have sort of, Do you have followers? Like, do you have people who hassle you? Do you get recognized in the George? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get recognized. I mean, I, porn is a weird recognition because people kind of want to say it and they don't. So people come up to me and they're like, I love your writing. And I'm like, yeah, I know you do. <laughs> but, but I mean, sometimes that's true. And more and more, especially for the podcast, like people are saying that they love the podcast, which is really great because now I've been doing that for like two years. But 
it was like for a while, people would say anything they could to avoid saying, uh, yeah, I jerked off to you. And I think it, when someone says, I've jerked off to you, I'm like, thank you, that's great. That's why I did that, you know? <laughs> I did that so you could, you know, well, for money and for my own pleasure, but also so you can feel good, you know? So, but, but with women, you're right. It's like um, they can become really big icons, whereas the straight men don't. In fact, today... Um, so, what was his name? Luke There's Perry Rocco died. Sofridi and No, no, no. I was going to say Luke Perry died and the guy from Prodigy yes. died today. And also today, this male porn star, uh, straight male porn star, Bill Bailey died. Now, Bill is super sweet. He was so kind. He cared about other porn performers. He, he fell off a balcony and fell to his death to a parking lot. It was a really tragic way to die. He was such a sweetheart. And... Um, and the thing is, like, I'm <laughs> a little choked up, actually. The thing is, like, he's made hundreds of fucking movies. He dedicated his life to making other, to helping other people feel good and feel pleasure. And he's so recognizable, recognizable even as these other male porn yeah. stars by tens of thousands of people, probably as recognizable as Luke Perry at this point yeah. in time. And yet there will be no mainstream media coverage of this person who did all this media, who did all this stuff, who's totally recognizable because the idea is like, yeah, well, we recognize you, but we're not going to recognize that we recognize yes. you. So fuck you. Your corpse goes under the carpet because you are in porn. And that to me is sick. Yeah. Uh, that's so disgusting. Sorry, I'm getting a little angry about this. Anyway, Bill Bailey, you can just watch his porn tonight to honor him in light of vigil. <laughs> um, yeah, because it's a strange thing that pe people don't apply meaning to that part of their day. It's like the part of your day where it's like, I'm going to watch porn and have a wank. Yeah. But like, do you know what I mean? Like, if he was in, you know, if he was Luke Perry, I should be more shameful about watching 90210. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I mean, RIP Luke Perry, right? I mean, but, uh, but, you're, but yes, I, I see what you mean. And... I mean, I think it's this whole... Like Ron Jeremy. Like, like, you know who Ron Jeremy is, yeah? He'd be another really famous porn star from the 70s. Like, Ron Jeremy's whole thing was he got into pornography so that he... It was a gateway to be a serious actor. He wanted to be a serious actor in Hollywood. And how he started off was Ron Jeremy... Jeremy... He volunteered himself to be an extra in fucking tons of Hollywood films, right? So... Like, you know, he was very recognisable. He's got the moustache, he's got the beard. It's Ron Jeremy. But what would happen in the 80s and 90s, now I'm talking like Die Hard, uh, I think Reservoir Dogs was another one, like really big films. It would get to the editing room and they'd have an incidental scene where they're in a bank and he's got a tiny part and some lad in the editing room wanked off to his porn. And he said, that's Ron Jeremy. It's like, what? That guy there in the background, in the back, is Ron Jeremy. He was caught out of so many films as an extra because people in the editing room were like, we can't have fucking Ron Jeremy in this Bruce Willis film. <laughs> and it's really sad, and there's a tragedy to it in how much of Ron Jeremy's serious attempts just got left on the fucking cutting room floor. For what reason? Because he was legally having sex with adults on camera. Like, what the fuck? But they kept the movie title. Did they? Die Hard, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but... I mean, not to, let's not valorize around Jeremy, who's been also accused of sexual assault oh, has by he? multiple women. Yeah. Oh, I but, didn't know um, that. But okay. Right, I'm glad he's not really in changes now. your really changes your plans for after this. Huh? I did not know that about yeah. Ron Jeremy. But um, yeah, but no, I mean, it's just one of the many the many problems that people face who have done an act 
that everybody does and that everybody thinks about, but do it publicly, and suddenly there's a problem. I mean, that is really like think about That's how crazy thing, that yeah. is. Like, what and the also, fuck? yeah, and also People this is the oldest. All the time. Yeah, it's what if there's, a, there's if there's a robot in the room looking at you, you're filthy and need to die. Like what the fuck? It's really, it's really bizarre, and you can start tracing, as I've done in some of the writing I've done, but it's like you can start tracing how sex becomes used as a leverage point for people and institutions in power to control other people. Yes. So I'm sure that you've experienced some of that in Ireland, but I, where like sexual repression and oppression and suppression have fucked people up and been ways to control the populace in some way. And so I think that you can start seeing that, and so this continues for people that are sex workers for sure. So there's this like documentary after porn ends. There is now there's no after porn ends. Once you're a porn performer, you're always a porn performer because you've always yes. you're always visible, you're always out there. It's never going away. And so I think that like, you know, I try to talk to people when they're like, "Oh, I want to do porn." I'm like, "Okay, are you ready? Are you really ready for this? Are you ready to be discriminated against by your family, by people, you know, by people in relationships, by you can't in the US actually just so you know, as a sex worker, you can't use PayPal or Venmo. Mm -hmm. well, if they discover that, you're never allowed to use it. The government can shut down your bank account. Mm -hmm. um, you can get fired from jobs legally, all this kind of stuff. So it's a whole heap of discrimination being handed your way just because you're doing something publicly and giving that to other people that, that other people do privately. So what I say is like... like just yeah. uh, to interject, yeah, you've worked with John Ranson. Yeah, uh, John Ranson. Yeah. Are you familiar Not with John? <laughs> Not important. Not important. Yeah. <laughs> Are you familiar with John Ranson? Uh, he made the butterfly effect. He did that recent podcast on August Ames. He wrote the book. Uh, so you've been publicly shamed. The men who stare at goats. Men who stare at goats. Yeah. Like an amazing journalist, writer, documentary maker, and he's consulted with you quite a bit on his stuff. And there's one thing I don't know if you remembered. If you do, would like to tell the story, but. In The Butterfly Effect, John Ronson speaks about it's a male porn star who left porn to work in a hospital. To very, uh -huh. Do you remember that? Uh -huh. Do you know who I it was? So. I don't remember uh, who it was. but yeah. So this, this, this porn star, he'd been in porn for like three years. He was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. Went to medical school um, to be, I think it was like an EMT or something. Gave his life to it. Uh, then finally gets a job in a hospital. He's working at it. He loves it. He's passionate about it the hospital find out that he used to work in porn and they very calmly sit him down and go, look, I've no problem that you were in porn, but if you were alone with a client or if you were alone with someone in a hospital bed and they simply said that you had assaulted them, the fact that you did porn is enough to cost this hospital millions in a lawsuit. So they let him go, they fired him. If you said that you assaulted them, so think about that, the idea that a porn yeah. star is more likely to assault somebody, when in fact, you know, every, like there was a period of time where a lot of people were asking me, like, well, what can, what about rape on porn sets? What about sexual assault? Like I mentioned Ron Jeremy before. Yeah. I was actually very close friends with a guy named James Dean that was accused of sexually assaulting yeah. like a bunch of women, and so I just sort of stepped back a bit but but a lot of people around that time were like what what about rape on porn sets i'm like do you understand like the levels and layers of consent we have on a porn set mm -hmm. people should be asking us for lessons on consent because we have to do what, all was kinds James of shit accused of issues with consent on camera he was accused of issues no not the first one was not um and the first one was stoya who i mentioned earlier mm -hmm. but then some of the other women said that there were moments on where he might have crossed the boundary mm -hmm. yeah so um but, but the idea being like, 
think about what consent is like for a porn performer. I get an email that's like, you're gonna have sex with this guy. I might not be attracted to the person, so already, like, I have to do something with my ability to allow that encounter to happen that's not just about my preference. And I, I'm, I'm excited to, and I'm interested in it. Then I go, and the acts that I'm doing are determined by the director, right? And we have to keep constantly checking and triangulating. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And having this kind of communication for hours. So we know consent. So this idea of It's a, a non-stop consent narrative. Yes, exactly. Okay. Constantly. Yes, that's a, great, that's a great way of saying it. And, and, so, and it's obviously edited, so we don't see that. So even when like positions change, someone yeah. goes, we're going to do this now. Is that cool? Yes. And that's edited out. And in aggressive porn, like where people you know, call it like, oh, it's violent porn or whatever. Yes, it's happening there even more. Why did you air quote aggressive porn there now? Well, because people, <laughs> I don't know where people get their ideas of what's happening in those movies because they see them, they turn to them out of interest for whatever reason of their own sort of desire set and then they get worried that somehow some awful thing was happening on set. But in fact, the layers of consent in, you know, especially BDSM porn are like, they're, they're through the roof, you know, the way that people, and I'm not seeing nothing bad ever happens. It does happen sometimes, but why are we only focusing on that, you know? Mm -hmm. I, and I think it's like, you know, when you talk about the assault, when I'm talking about these things, sex workers, we're called sex workers, and that includes porn performers, sex workers do so much to carry the burden in a culture that won't work on sex. We're sex workers. And it's the, I think we're all just fucking tired of carrying that burden. I mean, we keep doing it you know, for, for whatever reason, but one of the best things that could happen for sex workers as well, uh, to listening to them about labor policies, is like, going inward and starting to work and undo your sort of knots and fears about sex and sexuality. Um, on the issue of consent and porn, right, how do you determine consent if somebody is under, we'll say, financial duress, yeah. things like that? Yeah, so again, we have to say that's, that's the same for every single kind of job, right? Yeah. So the idea is like, I've heard this line before from some people who are anti-porn and anti-sex work. They're like, well, non-consensual sex is rape, and your job structure is also like being imposed upon you, but everybody's job is being imposed. The wage-labor relation is non-consensual, and we are all violated that way. Mm -hmm. The content of what we do as a strategy to navigate that oppressive wage-labor relationship is not the same thing as the non-consensual wage-labor relationship, which we have to get rid of. Um, Did that make sense to everybody? <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. It's a tough one, yeah, it's a tough one to take on board. It's like, yeah, we don't have these conversations here, you know, there's no, can you think of an Irish porn star? There's none, like it's not, it's not really a thing. <laughs> There's Patty O'Brien, but he lives in... <laughs> what? No, I'm serious, but he lives in... But he lives in and there's also Brendan Patrick, who lives in the U.S., but they're both gay but, porn stars. Yeah. Uh, but are they Irish-American or proper Irish? Like uh, Brendan Patrick's proper Irish. Okay, um, I doubt that's his real name. There's no one called Brendan yeah. Patrick in there. <laughs> um, Patty O'Brien, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Has yeah. anyone ever seen Fucked in Ireland? So it's... <laughs> Has a, anyone ever been fucked in Ireland? <laughs> <laughs> a porn star called Tanya Tate. She was British. And she came to Ireland uh, in about 2002, I think it was. And it ended up getting in the papers because, like, a lad who was, like, a, a county hurler or something like that ended up in the porn. <laughs> but it was, it's amazing to watch. 
like he looked like a proper porn star and he was having a bit of crack. But then she had sex with one of her fans and he was just like an Irish lad in his 40s, very, very shy, quiet man. And there's an amazingly Irish scene in it, a beautiful Irish scene, <laughs> where Tanya's doing her whole, you know, porn thing. He takes out his mickey, right? And she goes, oh, it's so big, it's so big. And then he goes, ah, no, it's not, it's not, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and I had to turn it off. I was just like, no, sir. <laughs> Stop exposing us all. Ah, no, Tanya, it's not, it's not, it's not. It's very small. Do you know what I mean? It was just pure and utter Irish shame. It's like, you're shooting porn and you're worried about fucking compliments, man. It's like, we can see your taint. And you're worried about someone looking, thinking that you might be a little bit cocky. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Thank you all for listening to that. That was, uh, that was good crack. I enjoyed it. And Connor's a legend. Um, all right, there you go. There were some audience questions at the end, but that was a really long one. I just didn't have time to put in those audience questions. It went on for, I'd say, another 40 minutes after that. I just didn't have time. All right, uh, talk to you next week. God bless. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.